Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason, sourceful of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, Kevin Rowland, Dexter's yes. Midnight Runners. Wow. He was such a presence in the 80s. I remember being every, everyone being maybe a little nervous. To You didn't want to kind of get Kevin on the wrong foot. You know, back yeah, in those well, days, did incredibly, you? yeah, incredibly intense, and I mean, he was that because he carried over. It was that whole punk ethos of just absolutely meaning it and being genuine, wasn't it? Which he took to kind of extremes, with, and the band lived almost like a cult, didn't they? Well, yeah, I think he got them to exercise and do and do running together and stuff. But also, I remember when they didn't speak to the press and they and they put ads in the press with statements about yeah. what. what what they were doing there was one statement that went in that where kevin said that he thought that there was nearly a coup about to be attempted in the band where they were going to get rid of him i mean it's extraordinary stuff i mean and they, um, they did a tour and they actually advertised it mentioned that, that their tour was they were doing they were bunking the train so they're like it's like everyone knew in advance that they were basically just traveling on trains without tickets which seems, <laughs> if, if i was a tour or if i was booking a tour I'd be like mate I'm not sure this is the way we want to go about it also but, you know, it's worth remembering yeah. the trains were in public ownership at the time so that's not actually a very socialist thing to do oh. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be the one to tell him I'm not that's what I'm but, saying now but you know what he did do he knocked Billy Jean off of number one in America wow yeah now come on Eileen that is seismic yeah, that, that record was that was just one of the most omnipresent things, wasn't it? It was so it, everywhere. It was with the uh, Siobhan... when I used to work with Alan and Win Stanley, who produced it, who had this used to have this fabulous big studio um, under the flyover in Notting Hill, and and they said it was come on Eileen bought it. Yeah, extraordinary record with yeah. with Siobhan Fahis from Banana Rama's sister in the, the video. Do you remember? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and also, you know, Kevin's clothes. You know, he's he's very important to him. His look, the look of the band. Yeah, and the way it's everyone... like the, every album. Every album is a look. It's enough of us, right? Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Two, two get good years, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Kevin. Oh. How are you? Hey, Kevin. Look at that. <laughs> are, you in Mi- are you in Miami? Thailand, <laughs> not too far off. <laughs> You're in Thailand? I really? Am. I am. Oh, my word. Wow. Certainly dressed for it, but of course you're always dressed for it, aren't you, wherever you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you for busting into your holiday for us. Man, come on. Come on. Where in Thailand are you, if you don't mind us saying? If you don't mind us saying. Yeah, I'm just uh, near John John Tien, a bit a few miles from Pattaya. Oh, okay. Yeah, lovely. You're looking very fine in that shirt. It's beautiful. Thank you. Is the light all right, or am I a bit dull? No, you're good. Dull is not, not a word one would ever associate with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much for that. I'll take Kevin, that. thanks for coming on. You know, I've been trying to get you on for a while. You know that. Yeah, and, but, you know. Finally, you, you're here. And you, you're, um, we, we should talk about, because I saw you were on the, you're on the front cover of yes, classic, classic Pop. Classic Pop. I am. And um, I loved, you know what I liked about it? The first thing I noticed is the lineup of the four of you, you know, with, with, um, with, with Helen and, um, oh. and with Jim, obviously. Yeah. Is you're still thinking about Roxy music. It, it's got the vibe to this picture. Yeah, yeah. Of, of that inner sleeve of, you know. Yeah, the inner of, sleeve of the second album, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, you know, I'm quite upfront about my influences. You know, why not? That, those were just iconic uh, shots, you know. Did that influence uh, you getting Neil Hubbard to play in the band? No, uh, okay. I saw Kokomo in about oh, okay. 75, 76 and absolutely loved them. They were amazing. Oh, the band. Yeah. They were one of the best British soul bands, really, you know. Yeah. Right up there with the average white band for me. They were just great at that time. And well, um, actually, one of the greatest, most underappreciated bass players Britain Alan, ever Alan Spinner. Alan, Alan Spinner. Alan Spinner. Just. Yeah, just one of my absolute heroes. Oh, really? Me too. Yeah. What a player. What a player. Neil Hubbard said that Alan Spenner would just like create like a carpet effect under, you know, just make you feel really good that you could just play on the top of it, whatever you're playing, you know. Because we'll go we'll go back to your roots later. Because yeah, yeah. I Sorry. mean, obviously, soul is something that was, was was big in your life in the 70s, as it was for, for, for me as well. I know sure. God. Yeah. But, um, just to, to really to kick off talking about the fact you 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 got this uh, remix of Two uh, IA, yep. as it could have sounded right. Yeah, as it should have sounded. We're going to sound. We're going to change it to now. As it should have sounded. It was going to be could have. Now it should have. <laughs> Does that? Were you thinking that at the time? Were yep. you thinking ah? Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. And I went to the label and I said, "This isn't right." Some of the tracks are great. Eileen come out really good. The Waltz, one or two others, but. You know, quite a lot of them, that sound isn't right, you know. And uh, I said to the label, look, we need to, to do some more mixing. And they went, no, 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 budget spent, that's it. And uh, our stock was quite low at that time, you know. We hadn't had any hits for a while. Funny yeah. enough, Gary, you had reviewed our previous single, Celtic Soul Brothers, on Round Table. Oh, oh shit. 
<laughs> oh man, you gave it a good review. You did. Oh, <laughs> oh. oh. thank you. I can, I can just imagine. I'm sorry. I, I can just imagine how Gary's heart stopped at that moment when you said that. <laughs> we all think the, we all think the worst, don't we? When we think yeah. like that. But no, I was just going to say I used to go on there and slag records off and try and sound clever. If I was doing that again now, you know, I'd think about you know what. This is some probably some new group. Their mum's listening. All the family are listening in, you know. Yeah. You don't realize, you don't think about that at the time. But anyway, there you go. That's right. No, because uh, not to mention all the work. That's what always gets me. True. All the work that's gone in and like months and planet. And, th and then you just go, no, shit. Exactly. I, uh, <laughs> I was trying to get, I'm trying to get Alan Partridge or um, sorry, Alan Partridge. What the fuck? Am I talking about? <laughs> 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 not Alan Partridge. From XTC. Oh, Andy uh, Partridge, yeah. Andy Partridge. Andy yeah. Partridge. Jesus Christ. This is Alan Partridge. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and um, he, we've got a mutual he, he, we've got a mutual friend and I said ask Andy if he'd want to come on to Rock on Tours and, and he asked him and he said no Andy said he, he doesn't think you'll, you'll have him on because he said something mean about Spandau Ballet once <laughs> I mean we were all kids doing the same having the same war weren't we between we the charts and that's how it was wasn't it you had your tribe and you, you know they were in that tribe and that was how it was <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so have you gone back in with the original tapes? Who's mixing it, remixing it? Pete Schwear. He remixed, uh, well, he mixed Don't Stand Me Down and he's mixed every Dixie's album since then and recorded, you know, so he's, he's our guy. He's totally our guy, you know. He's really musical. He understands dynamics and drama in music and subtleties and, you know, and uh, we finished it. You know, he's just been like sending us, myself and Helen, he's been sending us mixes, you know, and then we comment, we talk between ourselves, then we sent the, the comments back to Pete, and then he would, you know, make any adjustments until we we're all happy, you know, and then that was it. One thing I've noticed on all your albums, since from Don't Stand Me Down, we'll get to all this later, is, oh. is that you always, you're, you like really roomy sounding drums. It's really nice, like you're in the room with the drums. Yeah, yeah, I thing. suppose so. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. sound like drums, because I can remember, like, yeah. um, before I really understood about that, I'd go into the studio, where we'd all be playing and thinking, oh, man, this sounds great. Drums are sounding great. Guitars sounding great. And then you go into the control room and I think, oh, it's not sounding as good. And I'd realise because the mics are really close up to the instrument. Yeah. They're too close and there's no room in it. There's no space. So, you know, you're not hearing what you hear in the room. You're just hearing, you know, what's like an inch away from the drums or the, yeah. the amplifier or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, what's... Uh, I'm re-listening to a lot of your stuff in the last few days. Is, oh, really? um, Which has been great, yeah. Is, is oh, what we're is, pros, mate, we're pros. Is what is interesting is, is you want to try and capture this spirit of a gang on stage, you know. Even in your records, there's a sense of street and place about about what you do, you know, whether it's even on Tour AA when it, it feels like a sort of an Irish West Side story. But at the same time, you know, you might you might zoom in and focus on a couple zoom in and couple on focus on a couple Box of side story. Focus but focus on a couple of people talking quietly in a pub. You yeah. Know, that might that might be part of the song. So I think your albums always have this this theatricality. Drama, yeah. 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 True, true, true. I mean, you know, it's like um somebody said to me recently, I did an interview about a year, two years ago, and they said, Why do you quite often have talking on your records? And I yeah, I didn't really answer it. I just thought, well, why wouldn't you? It's just another color, isn't it? And you know, we're talking about soul music, 
And I, you know, if you listen to a lot of soul records, there's, lo- there's often talking on them. You know, if you listen to the Shy Lights, have you seen her? It's like a minute talking. Barry yeah. White oh, records. Right, right. Sorry, right, yeah. You know, loads of records have uh, soul records of talking, but very few rock records will have talking on them. Funnily enough. That's right. Well, who was the band who That's went through? That's a very through, good point. Who, who went through their star signs? Who was that? It was uh, the yeah, Floaters. The Float Floaters. Flow Larry. on. Yeah, yeah. Larry Pisces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was just like the classified sets of music, wasn't it? It was a sort of pre-Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, but I also heard that you got like people like Robbie Williams redoing some vocals on tracks so that's that can't be for the original album is this is a sort of bonus tracks with, oh yeah with... we were doing some extra tracks we were gonna do that but it looks like we're not now um we okay. were gonna do that you know how these things go with the label we thought it was a great idea and they went how much i mean it wasn't going to cost a fortune but you know anyway so it looks like that won't be happening now although robbie's done his actually and he's done a really good version of jackie wilson said um oh wow yeah oh, David Holmes was going to do um, Liars A2E and Adrian Dunbar. He's best known as an actor, but he's a really good yeah. he's a really good singer and bass player. Uh, bass player? I did not know that. Well, yeah. he's, he's best known for Jesus, Mary, Joseph and the Wee Donkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he was going to do a version of uh, All in All, The Walks, off, off of the album. Anyway. Oh, wow. It's probably not completely gone, but it looks like it might be, I'm being told. His voice would be great on it because obviously, you know, it was it was a huge Irish influence on on, on yeah. the record. Yeah, yeah, and he, I mean, I met up with him. We talked through the song, and he really got it. You know, he really got it. So I was quite, I was quite up for that. Because your time growing up in Ireland, Kevin, it wasn't as long as 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 all that. I don't think, from what I've read, but oh, it, it's made massive three, impression on your life. Just three years, wasn't it? Or, no, blimey. You know me better than I know me. Um, it was three years from the age of one to four. Yeah, my parents were sort of going back and forth. So my dad had started a building business and that went uh, in, in, where was it, in Wolverhampton and that had gone down. So he uh, had to sell his house and get rid of his business and that. And my mum and, and uh, the four kids went over to Ireland to my dad's little farm, you know, in the west of Ireland. And, uh, and my dad stayed in England working so for three years. Yeah, that was that was not uncommon in those days with the Irish. And then we moved to Wolverhampton when I was four, and then London when I was eleven. But even though you were in Wolverhampton and London, was there a sense of Irishness about your your upbringing, as it yeah. were, about your culture? It was. It was. I often say that, you know, like um, second generation Irish is almost like a social class, really. It's like, um, you know, and I've talked to other second generation Irish like recording artists about it, the likes of uh, Johnny Marr. Feel similar about Johnny it. said a brilliant thing because you know I was gonna, it's funny because there's a thing in the um, Come On Island video which is the thing which is where all the guys lining up and getting in the van, which is what oh, all the, yeah, work, yeah, know, the yeah, Irish yeah. workers do in the morning. Because I remember Johnny Marr saying to me years ago, he said, "Guy, you remember when you were kid? He said, "You remember those guys you saw in three-piece suits digging up the road?" <laughs> I went, yeah, of course. He said, "Those were my uncles." <laughs> Yeah, and that was the Irish thing. Every everyone you saw, they all had a three-piece suit on. It was brilliant. They were all in the building. You know, my dad was yeah. in the building. Tra- everybody at school. So it was mostly Irish kids at school. You know, but no one really talked about that. But it was kind of drummed into at home, and it's been a bit of a love-hate thing, really. But you know, right. And the two things right, right. really mixed in together. You know, but was the was 
Irish music in your house a, a lot? Did uh, some of the time, but you know what it was. I mean, my mum had it more, and she would sing songs and that. You know, like we would sing more, like than have records in those days. Um, and my dad was a little bit. He was uh, kind of ambivalent about the Irish thing, and I said to him, and he passed a year ago. He was nearly 103 when he passed. Oh. Oh, wow. no, Kevin, that means you're going to be making albums for a long time if the g- genetics well, are right. <laughs> well, Dad didn't do any exercises or anything, so I'm doing exercise and stuff, so I reckon I'm going to make up 140. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I said to him a few years ago, I said, why, why did you really not want to be part of the Irish community? Because we sort of were, but we weren't. And he said, there was an awful lot of drinking it. There was these exact words, you know, and there was a lot of drinking it. And, I mean, he, was, he told me, like, he would be working with guys they used to call them long distance men. They would, um, they would walk, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles to a job. Um, they'd work for a couple of weeks on a building, labouring, working all the hours God sent. Then they'd pack in. They'd be living rough, a lot of them. Then they'd go on the booze for a few weeks. They'd do the money and then they'd start all over again, you know. And yeah. then they were hard men and they'd die young and all that. So I think he was, he was, and he said he used to even that like they'd take the piss out of him and say, like, uh, where'd you go? Where'd you come from yesterday? And he went, Coventry, and not be 20 miles away. And they go, You didn't you didn't get a bus, did you? You walked it, right? And they go, Yeah, 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 I walked it. Or <laughs> where'd you sleep last night? You, you didn't sleep in a digs, did you? You slept rough. Yeah, I slept rough. You know, because <sighs> that was the kind of culture. And if you weren't right. in it, they'd take the piss out of you, you know. And he, he didn't want that, you know. But you know, wow. Kevin you could be describing the kind of band you were trying to create with those yeah, yeah, early exactly. sexes, yeah. you know. That's a, yeah, sorry, no. No, because this sense, this sense of unity and, you know, the, I think was so apparent with your group, you know, that, that dressing people the same, you know, the commitment to the band, you know, there's all, all those rumours about exercising together, which I get the spirit of that, you know. But it feels the same thing. It feels like if you're not committed 100%, don't bother. It's true. And, um, you know, I mean, for better or worse, you know, my dad was very strict growing up and uh, I was very influenced by him, no doubt about it. You know what I mean? And I, and I so probably... is that where the drive came from? Because your drive is obviously, was certainly then. was Yeah, it was ridiculous. Phenomenal. It was ridiculous, yeah. really. I mean, it sort of, it was too much, you know. It was like I never knew how to switch off, you know. So, um but yeah, because there is a part of, of of with a band. It is being a. It is about having your own culture and being about moving forward as a, as a unit. But you are meant to be having fun. This is true. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Uh, and you was, have. Some, I know beautiful. you're on record as saying maybe I should have had a bit more fun. Well, that was the original <laughs> idea. You know, getting a band and do all that stuff. Yeah. And then it got a bit serious. I must admit, you know, in all in all seriousness, I found it very difficult being in a band. You know, trying to lead a band pressure of writing songs. I don't know if you felt the same way, Gary, you know, all of that. And and trying to, you know, I just felt t- I was over-responsible. And I, I don't think I was really equipped for it looking back. Because the way you were approaching it was fantastic. I love this thing of um, of literally hanging around outside the Birmingham Conservatoire to sort of solicit classical musicians right, so to stop you having to get old session players. Wow. Oh, you did. You really have done your research. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what we did. It was like, okay, you grab him, you grab him. Brilliant. It was a bit like a press game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kevin, what was... I love the press game, the conservatoires. Yeah. So they all had to drink out of pints of of jugs with glass bottoms so they could see you coming. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, what was, what was the music, though, that first turned you on? I'd say Elvis. 
I'd say Elvis, you know, like, yeah. um, I mean, I was interested in music from the off. I wasn't one of these guys who just kind of got into it in my teens or, or 12, 13, like from the off, you know, singing and yeah. And um, Elvis, I'd seen pictures of him before I'd heard him, you know, and then uh, because you know what it was like in those days, you know, it's, you had a radio. We didn't have a TV at that point. Yeah. We had a radio and I don't think Elvis was on it, but um, and there wouldn't be that much pop music. This is pre-Radio 1. So I was born in 53. So about 62, I think um, Elvis had uh, Can't Help Falling in Love, which I think was either number one or number two. And I heard that, you know, I was just like, wow, you know. Because it's funny how we have these kind of people that we still aspire to all our lives it's in the background. You know, like we mentioned Roxy Music and That's Brian true. Ferry, obviously, earlier. And Elvis, and you know, and I think, you know, the Beatles obviously come into a lot of people's minds, but it's... It, and they and they're there forever for you to compare yourself to, because mm. I I know you're a man who, who you know interested in your voice, interested in the way you look, and and I guess he's there in a way. Like he's he's instead of putting a picture of Jesus or the Pope up on your wall in you your know, mind, you've got a picture of Elvis there forever. Yeah, I mean he was just incredible, wasn't he? I mean it's just he looked amazing, he sounded him, someone's loving his voice, you know. Wow, and he's just unique. And then, so then, what was next? When was it, what was it that made you think maybe this is something you could do or should? Oh, I think from the very beginning, it was never in quite. It was what I wanted to do from the youngest, you know, right. like from about seven, eight, nine, you know, I just thought I want to do that. But then, what happened to me is, as te I got into teens, I tried to learn the guitar when I was about ten or eleven, but I was having like learning difficulties at that time. I'd probably be described with what do they call it now? ADHD. 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 Um, Looking back, I would say that would be the case. But um, so I just found it like maths, really, and I couldn't really learn. So um, and through my teens, I just thought, well, I'll never be able to do this, you know. And um, I did try a couple of times. When I was about 13 or 14. A couple of mates were forming bands. And I, I tried as a singer for this one thing. And, and I just, it was the first time I'd used the microphone. And as soon as I heard my voice, I just went, ah, oh, forget it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And I just thought it won't happen, you know. And then I was very, very lucky because um, I moved to Birmingham in 74. And my brother, Pete, he was six years older than me, and he had a social club band. And, um, and he, he's, he was playing the bass. It was a trio covers they were doing. And, uh, and he said to me, uh, the guitarist, Steve, Steve Skidmore was leaving. But it, because they were good mates, they'd given him six months' notice. So he said, That's a great name for a guitarist. Sorry. Steve Skidmore. Steve Skidmore. Yeah, and he's a great guitarist too, really, really good. So um, Pete said, Kev, if you learn all the songs in six months, you're in. So now that I had this, you know, goal, goal, yeah, I could do it. I could do it. And I was just about good enough after six months. Six months, that's nice. I mean, that's especially at that age, that's a nice long window. That was good. It is, it is. Uh, you know, my brother Pete was a teacher and he gave me a great bit of advice. He said, because I was trying to do it for two hours, three hours a night, driving myself crazy. He said, look, just do half an hour a night. Just put, do it every night. Just do half an hour. And that's what I did. And so I was very lucky. Got into but Pete's band. And then he said, you know, he said, do you want to sing one? Because he did all the singing. I went, nah, nah, go on then. And I tried one. And it sounded horrible in the mic. And I didn't sing again. And about three months later, I, I'd do a bit more, back, a few backing vocals. And I'd eventually sing one, you know. Then I started writing the odd one or two. And he very kindly let me put them in the set because nobody wanted to hear original songs. It was all Elvis, Beatles, all, them, all that stuff, you know. Do those songs still exist? Uh, oh, the ones I wrote. Songs. 
that one, there was one particular that he let me put in the set called Girly. I don't think it was that great. No, not really. And this is before punk has happened. Yeah, this would be 75. I read somewhere you had a band that was very sort of Roxy influenced as well. That was your first kind of proper band, as it were. Yeah. I mean, is that true? Was it you doing glam rock at that point? Not glam. But when I say Roxy, it was more like Roxy 74, 75 and more like Death School, you know, like greased ah. back hair, you know, and makeup and, you know, peg trousers and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Like and of that. course, that was Clive Langer, wasn't it? Clive Langer was in Death School. Clive Langer was in Death School. They were an incredible <laughs> band. They? They, were, they, yeah, they, were they were another band that should have done really, really well, you know. This is where our lives first met in 1977, Kevin. True. You know, oh, and I, I, you know, I don't know. It's funny how when you appeared as Dex's in later on, we all knew it was the same bloke because you obviously made such an impression on us. Spandau then was, um, we had a different bass player. My brother wasn't playing. It was a guy called oh. Richard Miller. And, and, uh, and we were called The Makers. And we were playing power pop, basically. Yeah. That kind yeah. of, you know, Gen X type music, you know. And yeah. um and uh, and the big place to play in those days was the Roxy. It was in in London, uh, in Covent Garden, which was the punk gig. Yeah. <clears throat> and there's a great website you can go to now, by the way, called boredteenagers.co.uk, okay. which is fantastic. Which is yeah. sort of history of, of of sort of unknown punk groups, and um, and there's the list of all the nights at the Roxy. And and in July 1977. We play a band called Transistor, a band called The Stinky Toys, and The Killjoys, oh, the which Stinky is your band. Toys were headlining. They were French punk, yeah. Yeah, the right. yeah the I remember them. They were quite quite known, yeah. They were, The and, Stinky Toys, yeah. And you were in your band, The Killjoys. It was a punk band. And uh, I, I remember Steve Dagger, who managed us and still managed Spandau on and on, being really impressed by you because you went off, you did your sound check, and then both of yeah. you went off and had a drink in the pub. Yeah, we, I, think it was out, I think we sat outside, but we chatted for about an hour or more. I remember it well. I remember it well. Yeah, I remember it. I remember it all of it well. Yeah. And I also remember, I think it was your drummer, drummer's dad. Yeah. Brought the gear in a pickup. Stan. Yeah. Was it? Stan, yeah. <laughs> yeah brought, Stan, brought, yeah. brought all your gear in the back of the truck and you sort of. That's, that's right. Because actually, I've, you know, I could, I could imagine, because you and Steve Dagger are very similar people, very you know, visionary people on how, you know, I think Malcolm McLaren had been, a, been a, quite a big influence on how you could create a band and drive yeah. it forward and, and what needed to be done and the commitment and the philosophy that is involved yeah. in all of that. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised you hit it off. Oh, well, and do you know exactly the same happened with uh, when I saw a picture of you guys, when I saw you guys, when you, you guys first started. And I said to my mate, Pete Barrett, who you might know, did a lot of artwork yeah. design for yeah. loads of oh, bands, you know. Okay. Um, anyway, I said to Pete, I said, I, I, I remember them as a punk band called, called The Makers. And he went, no. He said, <laughs> no, no, they weren't in the punk band. Is it The Cavalry or you're, you called yourself? No. What was the, didn't you have another name in between? Oh, yeah, Gen Gentry. The Gentry. Gentry. Not far off. Okay. He said, no. He said they were in a band called The Gentry before. I said, I'm sure I recognise them. <laughs> we, we denied that history at that point. Of, of course. course. We, everything was so Stalinist wasn't it Where, like in punk you had to deny your prog roots before that and then with the new romantic you had to deny your punk roots and then, yeah <laughs> you'd have a good memory in those days you know <laughs> <laughs> Kevin I watched a little interview with you last night actually uh, from 
early 2000s. And you said something that really moved me because, I, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's true, but it, you said this is the story of unfulfilled potential about your band. Is that how you still feel? Um, I try not to think about it too much. Oh, but man, you know, we've made some disastrous decisions and, and stuff. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, and I could have written more, really. Could have written more songs. And Yeah, oh, but the six, what, What's the writing process like for you? Do you write on your own? I mean, because you, in the early days, you always had a partner, didn't you? Usually. I write a few of the songs, yeah. the Dexie songs yeah. on my own, but, but most of them would be with Kevin Archer or Jim. Yeah. It was slightly different with Kevin Archer. He would more or less, in the first album, he would like, just write music and then just present it. And I would write words and sometimes a melody on top. With Jim, we'd do everything together from scratch, from the drum beat to the chord sequence, to everything together, you know, that's the second album. And then the same with the third album, third Dexie's album of the 80s, Don't Stand Me Down, me, Helen and Billy wrote that. But when did the concepts of Dexie's come together? How did it form in your mind? And how did you, you know, the look, the sound? Because it's so unique. It wasn't like anyone else at the time. No, I think um, I think it was about early 78. I was in the Killjoys and, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. And we weren't, we were trying to change, you know, probably to be a bit more like power poppy because that seemed to be the thing at the moment and all of that. And, and trying to be, trying to change really. We, did, we started to do like a couple of 50s songs, like um, I think we did Dream Lover and Great Balls of Fire. It wasn't really going to go anywhere, and we, we don't, you know, we'd already got a name as a punk band. And while I think once you've shown yourself as one thing, it's very hard to, you know, to change really. And um, so I think I realised that people would want to want to dance again, you know, and and uh, just had the idea for soul music, you know. And Kevin Archer joined the band, and very early on, after he joined the Killjoys, you know, I brought him around my place one night, and I played him a song I'd written called "Tell Me When My Light Turns Green." which I hadn't shown to the Killjoys. And uh, and he went, that's soul, that is. And I went, I know. And I just went, you know, long term, that's the plan. And he was like, okay. So when that group broke up, which was a few months later, we just got straight on and formed Dixies. But to, to answer your other question, you know, unfulfilled potential, I think like um, with Come and Eileen, which was a big hit, and oh you think yeah well <laughs> christ <laughs> no it was but you know i mean at the time it's a long story but the label didn't even want to release that they wanted to release jackie wilson said we had to fight for that it just shows you how funny things go but after it so the deal was i made a deal with the label look okay let's do eileen first and you know we'll do jackie wilson after in the end they said okay and then Eileen's number one for four weeks. And we've written one of the most original songs. It's come out of the year, you know. It's done really well. And I went and did an interview with David Jensen, who who'd pioneered Come On Eileen. He was the first one to play it, and he was pushing it, and he really liked it. And he went all in all, which all in all is one last wild waltz um, off the album. He said, for the next single, gotta be. And I was like, fantastic. And I went back to the label, look. David Jensen wants it. He's going to get behind it. You know, this has got to be the next single. I went, no, no, Jackie Wilson said. And I was like, and, you know, we argued. And my manager was on the Jackie Wilson thing as well. And in no. the end, what happened is um, I said, look, we've just released a string-leaden thing, you know, and now we're going to, this is a brass thing. 
And they said, oh, well, let's dub strings on it. And we dubbed strings on it. We had the worst of both worlds. And more than that, look, Van's the greatest, in my opinion, and Jackie Wilson's a great song, but it was a lousy choice for a follow-up single to Eileen, which was the, you know, one of the most original tracks of the, on the, of the year. And we had others like that on the album that we could have done, you know. But there you go, that's life. And after that, I was pissed off. And I said, okay, I'm choosing the next one. And I chose one that wasn't even on the album that I'd just written. Let's get this straight from the start. And it, I think it was just more or less to sort of state the point, really. I thought very conceptually, and I thought people have got used to this with strings. They want to hear more with strings. And really, you just needed to release a good song, a good song really. But anyway. Bill, we're talking about your relationship with the record company. What you did with your first album is extraordinary. And I'm amazed this isn't a sort of more famous story, the way you basically stole the tapes. Yeah. Did you not? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You actually did it like a heist. What, what, why did you steal the tapes, Kevin? What, what was going wrong? It's, it's an amazing story. So Pete, it's Wing, amazing Pete, story. Pete it's Wingfield, a, right? He's producing. Yeah, sweet, sweet man. 18 with a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great producer, Pete Wingfield. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of these things now, the first thing I have to say is, like I say, they were all just stupid things, which not only took away... Uh, emphasis from the music and what we were about but you know we lost the record company with that you know and um i can see how that would happen yeah, but w yeah. why did you do it did you didn't like the sound of the production well, it was to do with the, the deal wasn't no, it? no was no it? it was not i was very happy with the album yeah. totally happy right. Right, we've right. gone to the record company and said we're on a really lousy deal by the way i mean awful and we'd gone to them we gino had got to number one about three months earlier this is we're starting the album and we which i bought i bought hey <laughs> <laughs> nice one so we said look can we have a better deal and they were like well not really and all that they were mucking us around you know and they offered us one one point and it was lousy beyond lousy anyway and do you know what but it wasn't about the money it wasn't really about the money you know the same with the press thing a few weeks later we put adverts in the press slagging the press it was, I think it was sort of fear driven control and wanting to have something to fight. And I don't know. You yeah. Know. But was Bernard Rhodes, was Bernie Rhodes, Bernard Rhodes manager no. at that point? He, he, oh, okay. He so it out after the I first single because he produced, right, right. inverted commas, the first single and destroyed the song, really. And, uh, you know, and like, you know, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have a few, I think, you know, we didn't have an, an incredible start, really, and we didn't really have anybody who was supporting us. So it did start to get a bit like us against the world, because what happened with the first single, we went down, Bernard said, look, I'll be your record label. And Dave Cork, who used to promote was uh, shows on Clash and people like that, was our manager. He, he was based in Birmingham. So we were like, great. Sounds good. Bernard Rhodes. And then he sort of said, like, we're producers. And I said, who? And he says, me and Mickey. And I said, okay. And I thought, well, Mickey Foot might be better, you know. So anyway, we recorded the single, Dance Dance, Bernard, Dance Dance. It went well. The recording went really well. And I was phoning Bernard saying, okay, when are we going to mix it? Because obviously I want to be there. And he said, soon, soon. And then the next thing, our manager comes around my place, wake me up one morning with a test pressing. And he said, they had to get in the other night. There was no time to call you. And here's a test pressing. Now, I wasn't stupid, and even then I knew that test pressings were about two weeks away from the time 
that you record. You know what I mean? It takes a couple of weeks to to yeah. master it and then send it away to the factory and get a test pressing back. So I knew I was being taken, you know, and um, and it didn't sound good. It didn't sound anything like as good. I mean, my flatmate went in and he went, oh, nowhere near as you do it good as you do it live, is it? And he's yeah. not a musician. He just heard it. And I was like, <clears throat> and, you know, I went to, spoke to Bern. I said, look, we got to do this again. He went, no, no, no. Uh, and he went, the record company love it. And of course, I met the record company later. And they didn't love it. And in fact, they got Dennis Bavel to do a mix of it. All this happened unbeknownst wow. to us. And his mix didn't work either. Unbeknownst oh, to okay. us, all this had happened. So we said, okay, see you, Bernard. And so EMI signed us direct because it was going through EMI. I don't know if I'm giving you too much detail here. Is it? No, 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 no this like is it. great. This what, is what's, great. What's, a couple of things popped into my head here, but. Is, it's really hard, isn't it, for you now as a man in your 60s, judging the sort of actions that you did when you were yeah. back then in your 20s. It's, you know, you're the almost the father to your younger self in a way, aren't you? You're looking back with judgment in a way that is with sympathy also. But, but why did I do that? But of course, that's the greatest time to make art when you're in your 20s, when you're full of dynamic enthusiasm and anger and... And, and you don't know why you shouldn't. And and, and it, you were creating. <laughs> yeah. All you knew is you were being in a band was about creating an adventure for your life. It yeah. wasn't just about making music. Uh. You were creating the, a script that you wanted to look at years later and say, that was really good what we did here. But also the other thing that popped into my mind is you as a person, you know, who who is controlling in the same way I was, creates this music personally, makes this music sort of gives a little bit of a way to a producer and then gives all of it away to a record company who then try and control it. That's infuriating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's soul-destroying. And I knew that we were on a two-single deal. We didn't get signed on an album deal. And if the next single wasn't uh, right, it will be, see you later, lads. You weren't good enough. But we were good enough. We knew we were good enough. So it was bye-bye, Bernard. And then from then on, you know, we've really, you know, been involved in every, you know, turned up at every mastering session as well as all the mixes of course but you know the lot i mean you could literally make a film of this of, of, of that you actually you lock the studio doors you grab the tapes you had a getaway driver and you uh, actually legged it out of the studio and you were chased by the police up the up the yeah, a20 or wherever some of these stories some of these stories have kind of grown with <laughs> i mean they've grown like um i'm gonna i'm gonna put a plane in it i'm gonna i'm gonna embellish it more yeah 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 <laughs> i mean you know like there was when it was a dexys documentary i was the only one who didn't talk about it they asked about it and i just went you know what i don't want to increase all these myths right right all right i'm sorry everybody else in the band and i spoke to the director of the program afterwards and i said do you see how they all told different stories he said yeah it's like a subtext and basically what it was is we all, we did make the plan. They went out of the room. The album was great. We finished it. You know, it's all on the tape. We grabbed all the tapes, including the multi-tracks, just in case they tried to do remixes. And we grabbed everything and we put it in the van. It wasn't a getaway driver. It was our roadie. Now, Pete Wingfield, love him, you know, incredible producer. I mean, some great grooves on that album. And what he did is he came down in the studio with us. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, you go in there, lads, and play. He'd be down in the room with us. He'd be grooving. Yeah. He'd be counting us in, you know, dancing while they're playing. Really helped us, you know, and kept it very simple. A real soulful guy, you know, 
Yes, I've worked, I've worked with him. I've oh, with him. he's lovely. Great. Yeah. So anyway, what Pete did, the the the, the gates, we, we got the gates open and Pete just put himself in front of the van like that to stop us. <laughs> and I, you know, to stop us. It was just really a big gesture. And I went to the, Trevor was going to stop. And I went, Trevor, drive, put your foot down, drive. And he did. And Pete jumped out of the way, of course. And the police were called and they did go after us. But I think one of our band or two of our band had met some young ladies who lived nearby. So we decided to go there because we did think there could be repercussions. So we decided to go there for a couple of hours. Let, let it Lay low. And then we drove back to Birmingham. And then I went to, to Harrow, <laughs> Northwest London, a couple of days later with the tapes. Said, yeah, mum, stick these under, under your bed. With you. <laughs> and that was it. Kevin, is yeah. that why you're in Thailand? You're still in the witness protection? <laughs> um, I am. <laughs> I am. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. A couple of your soul references were so important to 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 you in the early days. Obviously, Gino Washington. I mean, did, you saw him. Did you see him play? Yeah, I did. That's what the song was about. Yeah, I saw him at the, the Railway Hotel in Wheelstone in '68. Yeah, because it, I mean, it was lo- that lovely idea of this guy just slogging it out, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. I mean, do you know that the thing about Gino is, Washington? It? You know his album, uh, Funky But Blah Blah Live, live album was the biggest, the second biggest selling album of 1967 in the UK. Wow. That's without any airplay behind uh, Bridge Over Troubled Water. That was 1970. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. some other album. I would have thought Sgt. Pepper was probably the biggest selling album of 1967. Sorry. I thought it was Boys. a Simon and Garfunkel album, but I could be wrong. Uh, well, maybe it was The Sound of Silence or something. Uh, could be. I, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. second sorry, biggest sorry, selling, sorry, selling sorry, album sorry. of the year. And, um, and he didn't get played on the radio. So he was a big artist. He was filling out clubs. It was great, you know. And then also you 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 had this guy. Who's the singer from Chairman of the Board? I'm, uh, you, you... General oh, Johnson. Oh, Holland, those yeah, Holland. Because yeah. that style, you, which I loved at the time, I didn't quite know about it then. And then I realised afterwards, you know, which you, you, you kind well, of emulated. To be honest, it wasn't purely General Johnson. I think I just got the idea. I don't know where I got the idea, but it was to put a cry in my voice. You know, and then I started to do it and I like ch- started to change the keys of some of the songs. We went around the gym's place and we, we played them on, in higher keys. And um, and then I thought, oh, it does sound a bit like General Johnson. And I thought, no bad thing. I mean, no the was also um, repetite Jackie Wilson yeah. from yeah. the 50s. So it was the sole yeah. thing. I think. <clears throat> I, think, I think what was interesting about what you were doing, though, is you were doing, you were sort of plowing a furrow that no one else was on. You know, this is, you know, over on my side, you know, you've got the whole new romantic electro stuff. You know, we were comp- we were going into funk a bit, but it was very different. Yeah. And then and then you had the sort of leftover stuff from two tone going on. But nothing. No one was doing what you were doing. You know, you, you were trying to create a youth cult yourself and uh, and a style of music yourself that was 
unique, really. I mean, it was utterly unique. What I think what I'm leading to, and the question is, did you feel the pressure that, you know, we, we should be, we should, we need to look like this or the, the influence from other artists ever, contemporary artists in the 80s? What, to, to look different to them? To be like them, to, to fit in. Was no. that, or was it, you was, your thing was to work against it? Totally. I mean, I think I always thought, you know, I'd often think, I think I saw one of your band wearing boxing boots at one point and thinking, shit. John Cable, yeah. Yeah, we're wearing boxing boots, you know. So it was always like, oh, listen, I've got this idea. Oh, fuck, someone else is doing that. No, I can't do that. It was always that. We've always got to have our own thing, always. Yeah. Yeah, but you were the same. Yeah, have you read? Uh, do you know Pete Perfidi's book Broken Greek? I've read a bit of it because because there's a description in there of of you on the tube, which he describes as like being the most enlightening. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. He's having basically a full on religious experience, which because he'd just never seen anyone so committed to a performance. He'd ne and never. I, I mean, I went back and I watched go that on performance. Such it was, incredible narrative art. It was a good performance. I went back and watched it not long ago. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm oh, sorry, guy. For a minute, I actually thought he'd seen him on the tube train. When you were talking, you meant the tube, the TV show. Sorry, yeah, I really. The TV I show, yes. I did. Oh, I see. Oh, I, I've got to watch yes, that. Yes, apparently Dex has appeared on the central line and gave the most impassioned performance. <laughs> we <of> this... <laughs> were wearing masks, by the way, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously kind of made that big move. I mean, that, you know, from going from from the Dex's soul stuff into the string stuff, mm -hmm. and then there was a. So I've tried to focus on how many people left and joined your band and went. I mean, yeah, there's a whole Pete Frame, Pete Frame, Matt. You know, you're you're. There was even one point. Amazing players have been through your bands. Amazing. There's even one point, Kevin. I think you put an ad in saying there was going to be a coup in the group. You know, I mean, what was what was? Yeah, I mean, I think it was something you invented. But what was what was what was what was going what was going on? Were you you? In your head, you wanted to change. Oh, you mean from the first album to the second album? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we'd released Show Me. And uh, I thought it would have done a single called Show Me in 1981. We did Top of the Pops with you, summer of 1981. I remember it. You were doing uh, chant number one. That's right. It the same Top of the Pops. And uh, Did we chat? Uh, we must have had a chat. I can't remember. We I don't must think have we did, chatting. actually. No, we probably hated each other. Oh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> that's, how it was. that's how it was in those days, you know. <laughs> Down, down different ends of the BBC bar afterwards. Oh, all of that. Um, <laughs> but, um, and that stalled at 16, that in, in the charts, that one. And I thought it was going to do better. I mean, I found out later that apparently it had been, what they call them, the strike force had been away that week or on a holiday or something like that. And they were going to be, um, you know, I found out about that later. But I thought, okay, you know, I was just thinking very straight lines. Okay, Brass has had it we got to think about something new. So I started experimenting with strings, you know, started getting, um, I mean, we, first of all, I said to Jim, look, how about learning the cello? And, um, and the other two. Brothers. That's right. Did you say that to three, yeah, to, to three horn players, yeah. you got them to, they were meant to just get up to speed with strings. Yeah, how do you feel about, how do you feel about being in the string <laughs> section as well as a brass section? They were like, <laughs> and they said, well, we'll try. And they did try, you know, and um yeah that is a, that's a hell of an art yeah it is it is it is it is, it is. <laughs> but you know you don't try they, they, they tried anyway and it wasn't working after a while so we decided to get some other players in and we got some people from so you're back to hanging around outside the birmingham conservatoire 
looking for string players well <laughs> before long we were actually we got a couple of students yeah. and then what happened is kevin archer who'd left dexies in the end of 1980 after the first band broke up he um he he started doing some he started also using strings he was doing some some stuff bernard rhodes funnily enough who by the way i must give him credit for the, talking about the vocal style he said he says to me look one thing he said all good singers have a unique vocal style and i didn't like him saying that at the time i was thinking what but afterwards i thought about it i thought he's right and that's when i went away and thought okay i'm gonna develop a style because i mean i loved roxy music now where did ferry's vocal style come from it was yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah just yeah. incredible anyway so bernard had said something else in, in an interview that kevin and i both seen where he said oh folk music is going to be a big thing and we thought wow you know that just sounded so radical in 1980 yeah. you know and um you know in the same way like in 78 soul music felt like it was a radical thing really you know to 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 to, to use soul music and we felt he felt the same and i felt the same uh, but i wasn't really thinking about it anyway he did some demos and they were really good and he played me his demos and um what happened was I was I listened to them and I said, can I can I hang on to this tape? I wanted to play it to Jim. I wanted to. And he said, yeah. And uh, I mean, this is quite a long story. I'll try and make it short. Is this his band Blue Blue Ox? What, what they call Blue Ox uh, Babes. Blue Ox Babes. Blue Ox yeah, Babes yeah. yeah. So he did say during that that conversation where Kevin played me his demos, he says to me, I said, great violin. It was Helen. And Kevin yeah. had gone down the music college. And I think he'd probably gone through the correct channels and asked, you know, who who is a really good violin player? And they went, oh, Helen, you know, the teachers or whatever. Anyway, and he got Helen to play on the demos. And he said, I said, she's great. And he said, yeah, he said, you, you know, you should check her out. She'd be good for you. So I said, yeah, we will do. So I think it was Jim went down to the music college, got Helen. And we started off with a um, cello, viola, and violin, Helen got the players. And um, we'd done one single, by the way, Liars A2E, and it just hadn't worked with a string quartet, it hadn't worked that great. Um, anyway, so Helen brought, they got this um, string trio along and it wasn't bad, did a couple of demos, pretty good. But I still thought it sounded a bit heavy and Kevin sounded quite light and I quite liked that. So for the next single, um, Celtic Soul Brothers, we used three violins. Now, Kevin used a violin and a Mellotron thing, but it had a quite a similar sound. A Melodian. Melodian. And he used a um, sort of Tamla sounding keyboard. And it was a really nice combination and a unique combination. And I was definitely too influenced by it, you know. Um, and I'll cut to the chase. He also had a breakdown and a build up on one of his songs. Now, it's not a completely unique idea, but it's a very unusual idea. I mean, you'd had Bad Manners had, um, I think it was Special Brew the year before, had a breakdown and a, and a speed up. And it's yeah. like, bend me, shake me, have a Nagila. There's different songs, but it was a very unusual well, idea. James Brown may have done something like that. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. So. No, but it was totally standout at the time. It really it was, it really was. was. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, there was a couple of times, me and Kevin were starting to fall out a little bit, like he, you know, he went, yeah, I'm forming a really young band. And I thought, is he digging me out? Oh, and he says to me, he said, look, I love Kevin Dearly. But at the time he said to me, look, when my band comes out, I'm going to slag you off. Don't take it personally. And I was like, what? 
So, um, so we were a little wow. bit at loggerheads, and once it's like wrestling. So I thought these three viol- violins sound a bit like Kevin's. Oh fuck it, I was a bit like that, you know. And then I thought that breakdown and uh, build up is too good not to use. I mean, two things. One, somebody said one of the band who was in Kevin's band and was in Dexy's for a little while, Andy. I'd said later on, oh, we ripped off his music, his chords, his even his keyboard lines. Absolute bullshit. I was too influenced by the sound, and I definitely nicked the idea of a, a breakdown and a build and a speed up with different chords, different melody, yeah, yeah. different rhythm, and different lyrics. Um, we didn't steal one note, one melody, one chord sequence, one lyric from Kevin's yeah. music. But I was influenced by the style and the fact that he had a breakup. And here's the really interesting thing. You know, for years, I was haunted by it, and I just thought, I'm shit, it was all Kevin, you know. But the fact of it is, after Celtic Soul Brothers, we went back to putting, not, not we didn't use three violins, we used, we did on a couple of tracks, but mainly we put a bit of trombone, a bit of brass behind it, like on Eileen, to just fill out the sound a bit. And the, the, the ironic thing is, and Kevin was really was pissed off when he heard Celtic Soul Brothers on Roundtable, by the way, uh, which I completely understand, you know. Um, and he was actually offered a deal by Stiff, and they were going, come on, we'll take Dexys on. And I was just waiting for his record to come out. I thought, okay, it's on now between me and him. Huh. And he was offered a two-single deal, and he didn't take it. And I spoke to him years later. I said, Kevin, why didn't you take that deal? Because I knew that he'd been offered it. He said, it was only two singles. I went, fuck, man, we were only on a two-single deal as well. That's what they, that's what everybody's been offered in those um, You cut him in on the publishing in the end, didn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, 100%. He gets gets through and has for some considerable amount of years, a considerable amount of the publishing from the whole of the Tour IA project. But here's the really interesting thing. Kevin was pissed off, never listened to the album, thought it was all his things on it. I was like haunted, you know, I was really shit. You know, I wouldn't have had any success without Kevin. Fuck this, you know, I'm useless. And then Tim's listening parties, Tim Burgess's yeah, listening yeah, yeah. Tim Burgess, yeah, yeah. Last year, they put on Tour IA, and me and Kevin had been speaking before that, and we'd been, you know, and I was like, we'd made contact again after a few years, and I went, Kevin, it's like a part of me's been missing not talking to you, and we're, it was really good. And then we both listened to the album, and then we phoned each other up, and he went to me, he said, so, he says, the sound on Celtic Soul Brothers and the breakdown and the build-up of Eileen. And I went, yep, that was it. Yeah. And that's what was it. Nothing else, just that. Not really. There's a couple yeah. of tracks where, no, where we, we used three violins, which sounded a bit like Kevin's, and we probably used a bit more Tamala Motown piano than what we did, than we would have done. Tamala I Motown. Think this, oh. I think this, I think... I think, but if, if you've got people who are starting from the same place and they're looking to go to a different place and they've been doing the same thing, then you're always going to be sort of morphic resonance. Well, so I was more influenced by them than I should have been, definitely, and I regret it. And the last thing I'd want to do, and we didn't need to, you know, we didn't need to. We could have put brass behind that sound of Celtic, so it would have been fine. But the real tragedy is that Kevin backed off and didn't release his records. You know, that's a fucking tragedy. I think, I think what, what, what age has revealed to, to us about you, um, uh, Kevin. Sorry, my dog wants to get out. <laughs> Amazon parcel at the door or something. Um, what age has revealed about you, Kevin? Is is you know, 
the outside impression that you gave in those days was of someone who knew exactly what he wanted, was going to get there, really cutthroat, didn't matter what else was going, who was falling by the wayside sometimes. We were going to make these records. You were going to have your, your, the concept your way. But now we know secretly that there was this insecurity going on all the time, which you're, yeah. you're, you're completely open about now, obviously. Yeah, I think that insecurity was driving me. You know, I had no idea I was insecure. I'd never even stopped to think about it. I was just so driven, you know. But there you go. But I was very lucky. I feel I was very lucky because the best thing that happened to me, it might sound bizarre, you know, we all took drugs and there's plenty of drugs around. I mean, I didn't really take too many drugs during that period. But as Dexy started to go, after Don't Stand Me Down, I was just like, where's the drugs? And, um, you know, the best thing that happened to me is I had five years of um, cocaine, intensive cocaine addiction. Best thing that happened to me is I became a cocaine addict. I got into a program of recovery, which was to begin with, hellishly frightening and baffling and confusing and it's like everything I knew was being challenged and but uh it sort of you know led me onto a path of you know discovery and looking at Happiness. myself and uh it's the best thing that's ever happened to me really I don't know what you're talking about uh I um because I wanted yeah it'd be nice to have a look at don't don't stand me down sure and how you could which is like your your nearest thing to a sort of concept piece the fact that there's no singles there's no and it's like, like I said, a lot of dialogue. Well, I think it, the most concept thing we did was One Day I'm Gonna Saw, which came out in 2012. Right. That was a whole narrative right the way through. I, could, yeah, but yeah. Which I just want to say now, I love that album. I came to see you play it. I know you did, mate. Bless you. Brilliant, brilliant record. I had a re-listen to it recently. Still oh, so bless good. You, mate. Bless you. Yeah, but the story and that particular look for Don't Stand Me Down, mm -hmm. which was, you know, which was around, which was sort of 1969, but kind of, very straight. Yeah, it was sort of that cover. It's like a Terence Davis film, isn't it, or something? You know, it's a, it's quite oh, beautiful. Terence Davis, um, what the longest, the long, long yeah. day closes. That guy. Yes, yes, yeah. It looks like a still from one of his movies. Really? You know? How interesting. Um, just what happened to me is like, um, you know, we went to America early '83 with the Two IA album, and I was just walking down Madison Avenue on my own one day, taking a stroll through New York as I love to do. And I stopped at a window, shop window, Brooks Brothers. It's in your video. That's in your video, isn't it? You have that your character going down New York, floating yes. down New York. Yes. Yeah. 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 And this is what she's like. Yeah. And, um, you know, I looked into Brooks Brothers and I saw these clothes, these Ivy League clothes, which is exactly what I was wearing in London, in Northwest London in 68, 69, really. It was what the media called skinhead, but it was actually a very, you know, sophisticated exactly. Ivy League look, yeah. you know. And, and I just was like, wow. I just started buying the clothes, really. That was it. You were you supported Bowie during that American tour at one point, didn't you? Is that, is that true? Uh, not in America, but in France we did. Oh, in France. Oh, in France. Yeah. Uh, Which tour? Not the, what, on the Sirius Moonlight tour? Yes. Oh, so did I. <laughs> With Ice House. Uh, with Ice House, <laughs> Australian band. We, yeah, we supported him in Milton Keynes in Edinburgh. And, and, Milton Keynes in Edinburgh and Rotterdam. Uh -huh. oh, okay. But you... you um. You know, you knocked Michael Jackson off number one, didn't you? I mean, Christ, that's that's a that's with Billy. You knocked not Billy Jean off of number one. I mean, it was huge in America. Yeah. Um, was there a sort of like, what I should be doing is more of this stuff now because you know what Americans are like. They they definitely wouldn't like change. They wouldn't like the idea of you going back and and not doing another Irish sounding you know soul Irish soul record. Yeah, was, I mean. Um... There was a couple of people said that, you know, we need another album, Kevin. We need it in a file. 
this was like in spring 83 or something. And we probably only had a couple of songs at that point. Um, By the way, which one's Dexy's? Hey? <laughs> which oh, one of you is Dexy? Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Which one, yeah, I, I love you guys. Which one's Dexy? <laughs> exactly, Dexies? all of that. All of that. The first time we played in New York in 1980, there's a guy, it was a really nice guy called Jerry. Um, you know, he's the A&R guy. And, he came, and I used to start the show saying, okay, something like, in here, nothing but confusion. In here, nothing but soul. Comes in the dressing room afterwards. I fucking love it, man. Here I got confusion. Here I got soul. You know how they go on. And... <laughs> but, I uh... think my point was, Kevin, is that, you know, you made an album yeah. that was tough for people. You know, you didn't want to release singles initially. Uh, there's a 12-minute track on it. I, I want to say uh, as, that I like, I love the album. I mean, I think the album is yeah. really got, I mean, I, I texted Guy last night saying that, you know, how, Incredible, I thought that um, that the long track on the, the, what, yeah. she's like. um, what she's like, what she's like is which be, yeah. which begins with a comp with that bit of very ominous that very ominous little sort of exchange Co conversation yeah. at what, the beginning. What yeah, what you talking I mean, about? it's it's a it's a twelve about. minute piece of theatre, a storytelling piece of theatre, and it goes that. into Beach Boys back in vocal style and breaks breakdowns and I mean, it was not going to smash the charts up by doing that was it, we didn't it was release a brave it. thing we didn't release it we, we we you know look i remember like that was always written to be a single you know that's why i say things about you know unfulfilled potential i think that that album could have done really well it wasn't uncommercial you know it it just oh, no, it it'd be, it, you know there was what's pop somebody said to me about pop lately pop just means popular it's not a style of music i don't think and it just means that people like it so there was you know, if we'd have released, there's a track on there called Listen to This. If we'd have released that, I think we'd have got airplay. I just think yeah. this is what she's like. I originally thought, okay, the demo was about six or seven minutes. You know, I, there was talk at one point while we were like, we'd been trying different producers. We ended up producing it ourselves with the help of Alan Wynne Stanley. But, you know, Trevor Horn was mentioned at one point and Relax had just come out, which I thought was great. And um, while we were recording it and, you know, Looking back, that would have been a really good thing. He would have got it, but I was frightened. Yeah. That, you know, I'd had quite a few bad experiences with producers, and I just thought, you know... Yeah, I, but it would have sounded amazing, whatever it was. It was well, <laughs> you know, I would have liked him. You know, thinking about it, he would have probably got it, and it would have been all right, you know. But anyway, and I thought it was that was meant to be a single. I think I was going to our manager, look, we're going to release just a long track, a six-minute single. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody was five minutes, five and a half minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Thought, art, art for art's sake. You know, 10cc, art for art's sake. I think that was like six. Oh, I'm Mandy, fly me, you know. It could be done. We wouldn't have had the conversation on the front of it, obviously. You know, but we would have been, a, we could have done an edit of that. And, um, but the manager at the time went, oh, don't release a single at all. And I just thought, oh. And then I just got into this thing. And I think, you know what, the whole, the Jackie Wilson thing. And I just think I just got, you know, I was going to America and you probably had it, Gary, like, except you might have had somebody around you that was just a bit more empathetic. And I didn't really have too much of that. So I was doing interviews for breakfast, interviews all day. You were showing the evening. And when I got after those tours, I was just like, get me the fuck out of here. And I just thought, I felt like I was a pop. I didn't want to be too pop. You know, I just wasn't enjoying it. And I just thought I really need to do something with some depth. I started yeah. to get interested in politics more and, and stuff like that. And, that all went into Don't Stand Me Down. 
I think when you look back on Don't Stand Me Down now, it's it's an incredible piece of work. And in a way, it was kind of unfairly yeah, judged because the people on the pop side in the in journalism and magazines were shocked by it because it wasn't, you know, doing what everyone else was doing or what they expected you to do. And the people on the art side had already given up anyone who had committed to pop music That's beforehand. That's so We fell in between the two. Is that what you're saying? I think, yeah, I am. I, I, absolutely. And, and in a so, but also the the thing of putting out an album without singles was something that that people could have done before you did this because especially it was more of an American thing because they had album radio, they had all those well, radio stations that did, would play album. Tracks, but there was you know? bands, you know. Look, you know, a lot of people say they didn't like rock music that much in the seventies. I actually didn't, apart from the odd thing here and there. I didn't really like it that much. I mean, some of, but what I was aware of, bands like Led Zeppelin. And yeah. yes, and all them bands were selling bucket loads of albums in the seventies and not releasing singles. Yeah, you didn't hear them on the radio. Yeah, but that's because there was a rate. There was a you did in America. That's the right. thing. They here had you didn't. Or rather, you know, in the no, UK no, you didn't, yeah. and they were still doing well here. And I just thought, yeah. why not? Let's do that. And I wanted, what I wanted was to try and get out of the pop thing. I was just a bit, you know, I just I was just tired of that. Really, it's like a job in itself. So was the yeah, answer to that to to lose the Dex's moniker and just say, well, I'm just going to do this on my own now. Is that why you never made another Dex's album after that? No, I think we didn't make another album. Well, I think we make another album after that. Don't Stand Me Down was exhausting. It was two years of really, really hard work. I mean, there's stories that we got lost and didn't know which take. That's all bore. We always knew what we were doing, but it was like we were going for the Holy Grail of playing and it never really... It never really took off until we got the right drummer, and that was Tim Dancy, who was Al Green's drummer, and we got him over. Oh, right. And it was Helen's idea. Um, you know, we were trying all these drummers, and they were great, and we'd get what, maybe get one track. We had Woody Woodman's, he did a track with us, and we got the waltz from that. Oh, right. We had another American drummer. And then we went to see Al Green, and then we were still trying to find drummers. Al Green was great. And um, Helen just said, well, why don't you just get that guy over? And obviously, we had the money to do that, and we just phoned up Willie Mitchell or whoever it was and said, look, the drummer who played with Al Green at the Albert Hall, can we get him, please? He came over. He, we sent him the demos. He was amazing. And the first track we did was a track called One of Those Things off the album. And they come in the studio and he's just looking around. He's a Memphis boy and he's going, looking at all the equipment and nice dish you got here, man. Okay, all right. And I went, <laughs> he's doing that for a few minutes. And I went, Tim, you want to come in and have a look at the track? Have a, have a run through? Well, not yet, kid. Not yet, man. What tempo is that? Then? And I said about <laughs> about a hundred and eighteen. Put that metronome on one hundred and eighteen. And he, I put the metronome one hundred and eighteen. And then he's just bobbing around to the to the tempo one hundred and eighteen for about ten minutes. All right. And then talking to everybody, Bob and he said, "Let's go do that thing, kid." And then we went into the room, man. And it's just first take. Oh. It's funny you said. I've got a story about that. There's a cause did he, there's a thing called the Holy Ghost that Willie Mitchell. This is apparently what Al Green's band used to do, which was it's and the Holy Ghost was you get the band in the room and you would get exactly what he did. You get the tempo of the song, yeah. and the band would stand around and they clap it, there you right? go. and they all clap it. until it's literally just one clap wow. until they're all absolutely zoned in. Then it's like go, all in it. yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what that's where that comes from. And it's brilliant. It's oh. most beautiful. It's called the Holy Ghost. Love that beautiful. story. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, you, you, you're so, you know, you went off and did your solo albums and there was some yeah, beautiful say, sorry, stuff just on, one that, thing, Gary, on that. It was Helen was a massive part of that. 
Helen yeah. O'Hara and Billy Adams. You know, they were a massive part of that. that that's right. not that. That wasn't me. That was all of us. You know, when one of us, when I would weaken and think, oh, man, this is just taking forever. And, th- and like somebody would be doing a take and I'd go, I oh, just fucking pass it. Helen would go, no, no, it's not right. And if, and if Billy was not having not on it that day and, and prepared to compromise, I'd go, no. And so between us all, we, we, we did that album. But anyway, I just wanted to make that I just point. want to mention... Well, that's really nice to hear. That's nice I want to, to mention that, just so. one track off of the solo stuff you did because I thought that your version of The Greatest Love is really special. It's really oh, amazing. Thank you, and, man. And I think there's... There's always this battle between the technical of singing and trying to connect your voice to your emotions. Yeah. And I feel you on that track, you're leaning into just saying, I'm just going to connect to my emotions. That's what's really the most important thing about this. I could hear it's you. You're not trying to sound like any soul singer, but it's so connected, Kevin. I think it was, it was, it's a really wonderful version of that song. Bless you, man. I'm re- that, that's so nice that you say that. And I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that because I really do think that worked. You know, I'm really proud of that. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. You know, I was very conscious of that song. You know, I first I'd, I'd heard that song, but I never really heard it until one day I was trying to stop taking cocaine. And I remember like I drove down to the West Country. And I was driving down and I had this tape, Soul 77, and I put it on. It was the George Benson version I heard. And I put it on. I don't know why. I was just in tears listening to it. So when the time came, I knew I've got to record that version, of that song. But I thought, I've got to find my version. So I really tried to get inside the lyrics and I changed them. And I tried to fit it to my own experience. And I took each line. I had a very good singing coach who just said, take each line and ask yourself what it means to you. And I did that. And I wrote it down, probably like you do with acting and stuff, you know. And I did feel I got it. And I worked on my voice technically. But, you know, like, as you know what happens yourself with music, what you're looking for is that transcendent thing when it's just happening. You're not consciously doing it. It's happening. You're in it. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what happens with the best music. And that's what, that's what, that's what we all hope for, right? I've got to say, uh, this might be an odd one, and it's actually really not one of my favourite Springsteen songs, but I really loved your Thunder Road. There was something in that that really oh, connected. Funny. My oh, head's getting big now. So that wasn't on the original album, though, was it? it? That got added later. It got added later, and and then a myth started coming around that Springsteen didn't like it, which was just ball. Gary, you, you'll understand this, having dealt with record companies. When I signed for Creation, and I, and I like those guys, you know, nice guys, I ain't slagging them. But we said, had Alan on the show, yeah. Here's, here's a demo... It wasn't Alan, it was another guy, Dick. I said, Dick, here's a, here's an, here's a demo of um, Thunder Road. Now I'm changing some lyrics here, as you can see, and here's the lyric sheet that I want to use. And here's a letter to Bruce Springsteen. Please pass this on to his management, his publishers. This is like 18 months before the track come out. They went, yeah, yeah, no problem. The course, I never checked up and the, I just got on with recording the album. The inevitable happened. Okay, we we got we, did we get permission for that track? Oh no! And so then they said we'll do it tonight. Well, they're not going to agree it now. So they sent a fax. Can we change the lyrics of this song to that? Of course, his publishers said no. Mm. Anyway, this time we had plenty of time. So luckily, my management, who are in America, um, know his management. I did the same thing. Wrote a letter to Bruce explaining why I needed to change the lyrics. And uh, asked, you know, would you mind? Would that be okay? And I've sent our version, and we got the permission about a month later. Fantastic! Really there you go. Fantastic. Do you uh, yeah. do you think 
there'll ever be you trying to make another Kevin Ronan album? Or have you suddenly now realised that Dex's is you and that's your the best way of presenting any music you record? Well, I don't think it's just me, but, um, you know, it tends to be, um, you know, like you said about um, the label after Tour AA saying you're going to do another Tour AA, I couldn't do it. I can only do what I think is the right thing. I just can't do anything else, you know? So I don't think I'd be able to sing somebody else's lyrics or, I mean, unless I, you know, I mean, when I say that, I mean like a collaboration. I've tried to write lyrics for somebody else. I'm like, no, 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 I can't do that. You know, I can take a song and, and hopefully try to make it my own, you know, but no, I, I just feel that as much as anything, I, I don't want to do it on my own. I don't want the pressure of doing it on my own. You know, I, I must admit, I don't know about you, Gary, but I find this business, you know, quite pressurised, really, even now. And um, I mean, I, I have to say, I find it less pressure doing things on my own than with a band. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Well, <laughs> but, but, actually, I like being in, a, in the band I'm in with Guy, with Nick, but I would just say, yeah. you know, when you go back to the same, you know, structure that you worked for you as kids but doesn't work oh. for you as adults it's oh. i think what i'm tr what i'm trying to get to as well really is that it feels like with you redoing to raya going back to it it's like you suddenly embracing your past and saying do you know what i i know i moved on but i'm also hugely grateful and i can see the heart of what i created and i'm embracing it now Gary, I'm usually grateful. There isn't the day goes by. I, I don't remember the last, well, maybe the odd day, but there's not many days don't go by. I'm not grateful for where I am. The fact that I'm here today, the fact that I've got some money, that I'm not broke, that I didn't end up some other way. Do you know what I mean? That, I, that, that I've got, you know, royalties and that. Do you know what I mean? I'm usually grateful for that. Um, no, but, but, but on the contrary, Touray A is really, this remix is about, writing the wrong you know i just felt the album was nowhere near as didn't sound as good as it should have done and um it sounds way better now but happy to send you a mix if you want oh, i can't wait and you're taking it on tour right yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah shows in, in november yeah uh, october oh, it definitely comes to that. who's the band please do um me it's jim it's helen it's sean and um i think probably a lot of film footage thank you kevin Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. Um, he's, uh, he's all the passion and the intensity, but not to a, a point that I, that was scary. Like I, <laughs> you were frightened. Yes. <laughs> no, he. We both yeah, were. We of both we were. No, he's uh, he's he's definitely mellowed, as they say. No, we, there's a lovely connection between you two, which I really like, which is why I've taken a bit of a backseat. So, yeah, he's. No, and really and I tell nice. you what, if you bump into Kevin, in, it's quite nice that sometimes it's like being a listener. You know, oh, nice. this, was I chatting too much? I'm so sorry. No, yeah. no, that's not what I meant at all. That's not what I meant um, at all. What's What's amazing is when you bump into Kevin in the street, whatever day, whatever time, he looks amazing. He's thought yeah, about right. everything, down to the socks and I'm sure the underpants. Yeah, no, last time I saw him, funnily enough, was in the sort of posh mod clothes shop in Brighton and um, we recognised each other. To, and yeah, and he looked immaculate. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening. Um... As usual, and thank you to our producer, Ben Jones. And we'll be back uh, next week or at some stage with someone equally as brilliant. Yep. Yeah, so it's good night from me. And it's good night from they. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.